Welcome, welcome to the RC Report. I am your host, RC Carlton, and today we have very special guest, Jean Marie Laskis. Jean Marie is a New York Times bestselling author of Concussion and a 2009 GQ article, Game Brain, which inspired the Golden Globe nominated movie Concussion starring Will Smith and Alec Baldwin. So there is going to be a treat for you guys today. But before we get started, I want to encourage all of you to go to our site, theponiclassicallybombastic.com. You can see all the podcasts. You can see the articles from our writers. We cover sports and entertainment. I also want to encourage you to go to iTunes, search IBN, and give us a rating. That helps grow the podcast. Just continue to spread the word. And while we wait for Jean Marie, I just want to put that in your mind. You can also go to Facebook backslash IBN, and you will be able to access all of our content as well. Along, and finally, along the long list of pimping I'm doing, you can go to Twitter and follow all of our things, everything you'll see. I'll put up all the links on Twitter at Bomb. I-C-N-O-B-O-M-B, Bomb. Jean Marie, are you there? Hi there, yes. Sorry, I'm a bit Hi. Late. How are you doing? Doing well. Um, so first off, I want to ask you, what has your, and I kind of already did your intro, and I'm just going to have to edit it when, we, uh, when I do it, because um, I got you a little oh, bit okay. late, so I'll just, I'll just edit it all together. So I did do your intro. I gave you a fabulous oh. intro. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> How has your perception of football changed? since you've uh, done your research and wrote this book and wrote the article? Well, you know, I, I, I still love the game. I love watching it, but I, I can't do that with a good conscience. I really, I, I, um, I know too much now about what, what's going on inside, inside the brain in particular. And so um, it's just, it's, just uh, it's fraught with anxiety for me. You, in a previous uh, interview, I think with the BBC, you said that America gets this information, but we kind of ignore it because we're dazzled by the NFL. What did you mean by that, that we're dazzled by it? Well, I think we're we're more than dazzled. I think we're sort of hypnotized. You know, we, we and it's not our, I don't think it's our fault. I think, frankly, I, I think we've been duped. Um, we are complicit in this thing that we never agreed to be complicit in because we've not been given all of the information, nor have, for that matter, the players until very recently about the the risks um, and the serious risks, risks, not just, you know, we're talking about the stuff that makes you, you know, a person, you know, your mind. Um, we 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 didn't sign up for that. We didn't sign up for watching that. So now we are, now we're hooked, and it's we're, we're being we're being lulled into forgetting about it over and over and over again. And so, you know, it it it's a it's a it's a really dysfunctional relationship we've got with the NFL here. I would say this is a larger argument that people make against the players, but I'll say it for the fans. Could I say that? Like, we, are, we don't know all of the details about concussions. And even doing my research with you and reading your book, and I haven't actually seen the movie, so I've only read your book. But um, doing all this research, like, we, we don't know the exact details, but in general, overall, even the fan knows it's an extremely violent game and bad things happen to the people that play it, potentially. Absolutely. And, and you know, you, you don't have to know that much science to know that, obviously, when you see a large, you know, a giant those kinds of hits that we all applaud in the middle of the field where people smash into each other and and they drop over and are unconscious, of course, right? But what we didn't know were what what the, what was going on with these sub-concussive hits on the line that, that are invisible. They're not really concussions in the, in the 
in the way that you think of a concussion as something you're getting knocked out, but they are, and they are they are low grade, low grade, low grade, and players every practice, every play are are you know getting that hit, and so what's going on in those players' brains, and it takes a long time to develop. It's usually after they're retired, um, and they the, we see this dementia showing up, and dementia to the point of you know, where you end up killing yourself. So how many times do we need to see that play out? I don't know. I, to, to really to be okay with that, to not be okay with that. Because right now we seem to be okay with it. What was the genesis of the article that you wrote in GQ that eventually that you based the book concussion on? What, was, what gave you the idea? How did you stumble upon that? Well, I had been following the there had been a lot of news. This is back in 2009. Um, there had been a lot of news in, in the early 2000s about, you know, Mike Webster and some of the other players who were showing up dead and that there was this research going on. But it was fuzzy and confusing. So all I tried to do was um, dial it all back and start from the beginning to figure out what, ha- what happened. And what I stumbled into was this guy, Dr. Bennett Omalu, um, the guy who had figured it all out. And he had, his name had dropped off out of the scientific literature, out of the popular media. He disappeared. So I got really curious about him, and that really was the genesis of that the story I wrote, and that's the guy who ends up, Will Smith ends up playing in the movie. You uh, have said in other articles that you wanted to start a con- oh, yeah start a conversation what what's the conversation that you want to have that you want to inspire i think the conversation we need to have is are we okay with this and let's play out the logic of what's what's happening we see now more and more players retiring early as they start understanding the risks to their own sanity from playing this game that's only going to continue as they start understanding the stuff that the NFL, frankly, has been hiding from them. But there's no hiding anymore, okay? So play that out. Who eventually is going to end up playing football? It's going to be disadvantaged kids who have no other way out, and so they have that way out. And so we're going to have to be okay with that, that we go to stadiums and watch people who are – disadvantaged economically and in all ways bash into each other and, and kind of end up killing themselves. I mean, that, that's, that's the logic of what, what, we are, what we are going to be watching when we watch football. And so are we going to be okay with that? Right now we are. And what will it take us for us to say, no, that's not, that's not fun anymore. Let's change Where do you see game. football, like in 20 years, maybe 50 years, do you think football will still be as popular? Well, you know, there, there's where you get to the part where I hate to be like the, the cranky lady saying, oh, oh, you kids shouldn't go out there and have fun. I don't feel that way at all. I would love nothing more than someone to figure this out so that we could figure out how to save the game. So I see either the science really getting advanced enough where we can we know – how we can prevent these kinds of hits, um, and I mean like chemically in the brain. How can we can prevent this protein from building up? Can you take a pill? Can you get a vaccine? You know, um, that's either going to go in that direction with the science, which is just a lot of people, you know, pursuing that, or are we just going to change the game to where it's maybe not quite recognizable where you're just taking the head out of the game. And there's a lot of people pushing in that direction, especially with youth sports. What have you seen as far as, and, and you seem more optimistic about the American public than I am. I think the American public is kind of aware of what it is, and we're kind of like the Romans in the Coliseum. And, yeah. we, and, and we want, we, we have this lust for this violence. I mean, we see it in our movies, we see it in our society, that we're just a really violent society. Is it possible that while we don't know the details, Part of it, we don't want to know the details because there have been players. When I was a kid in the '80s, I watched inside the uh, the NFL on HBO, and they would have players that were broke down that the NFL wasn't supporting, and they didn't specifically say concussions. But is it possible society is that we just want this? 
and we either ignore the details or we just don't give a damn. I think we, I don't think, I, I, I don't think we want it. I think we just don't want it to be as bad as it really is and that we can just still enjoy our game. I don't think we want it, for example, in, in our soldiers either who are coming back so damaged with PTSD and all these other conditions, which now they're finding has, has every, uh, a lot to do with head trauma, traumatic brain injury. I don't think we want that either, but we still want someone to go out there and, you know, win our wars. I don't think we're that – I'm not that pessimistic. I just – I do think, though, there's something strange about the way that we like to watch violence as a – like that that's entertaining. I don't I, – I think that it's entertaining to see people willing to bash into things, and maybe it's okay – like with, a, with NASCAR or something like that, when you think, okay, well – they're going to be patched together again. It's going to be all right. I just think this thing with football is so insidious because it happens so much later after they're all gone that it's easy to ignore. You know? Yeah, I think it is, and we don't we don't tend to care too much about the retired players. We we like what's in front of us, and we cheer for the guy, and then we yeah. find out like, oh my gosh, I used to cheer for Mike Webster, who kind of the genesis of this. I can't believe this, but most of the time, no one takes the time because. They're not in front of us. Um, yes, they're the gone at that point. Yeah, they're gone, and they're kind of forgotten, which is a sad thing. And the more I read about uh, Mike Webster and the other stories, and it just sickened me. It's really hard to read, and it's really hard to read just in general when you get – and I'll ask, I'll ask I'll, a question's coming here somewhere. Um, <laughs> when you look at the underbelly of sports, and when you uh, delved into this, and I, I think this happens with the way – Football uh, tramples over women in some ways. The sports oh, kind yeah. of puts women on, on, on the back burner, especially college campuses with rapes and things like that. But you expose a different part of the underbelly of sports. And what was that like to delve into the underbelly that no one really looks at, where most of the people look at the cheering and all the greatness of that? What was that experience like, and how eye-opening was it? It was, you know, it was really disheartening. And and I put my not, I'm not going to say, well, I guess I would say blame, really on the NFL, on the league, um, because they're gazillionaires, and they're, make, they're profiting so, so heavily off of the misfortune of these guys, who they're, then they're not taking care of. And they know it, and they have the science, and they have the money to do something about it. And they're duping us so that we keep buying tickets. To me, it's them. It's not the game. It's certainly not the players who, you know, go into it with all good faith and they're great athletes and they just want to play. Um, but it's the, it's, it's the leadership, you know. There's, there, there is not an honorable leader who's going to say, you know what, what are we doing here? How can we make this work and have it be that people don't end up killing themselves? How about we all just have that be our goal? And how about we take care of these guys after they're gone and really take care of them? You know, like set up some nursing homes for those who are suffering from dementia rather than pretending, you know, going to, you know, going to the courtroom and denying that it ever happened. You know, all that stuff to me is really criminal. And that, that's where I come down on it. And when in my research, it's just hard not to be angry, you know, at, at that kind of stuff. It sort of reminds me of the way I felt when I learned about the tobacco industry. And the tobacco industry, this is why I quit smoking. This is the only reason I quit. You could tell me it's bad for me. You could tell me it's bad for me. Yeah, 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 I get it. But the minute I learned <laughs> back in the whatever it was, the 80s, that the tobacco industry was actually controlling how much nicotine it was putting in those cigarettes in order to get me addicted and that they were planting that, I was so angry I quit smoking. <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me of that. What is, and I've heard you make that analogy before, and the same thing that I, and I guess I have less sympathy for the tobacco, but uh, maybe because my dad's a smoker and I was biased, but uh, it's the same thing I thought when I heard about people suing tobacco companies, and the same thing I thought initially, and before reading more on concussions, I'm more sympathetic with the players, but the same thing my initial thought, and I think the initial thought of a lot of football fans is these guys make a choice, to play this game, you make a choice to smoke cigarettes, and you know that there's inherent risk, and even Roger Goodell inartfully 
said, there's a, mm-hmm. there's a risk to sitting on the couch. But where does the personal responsibility of the players come? You know, because some people are firefighters. Some some people want to be ice road truckers. Some yep. people, you know, wrestling is another thing that people do and they have a lot of concussions. Some guys play rugby, you know. So where is the, when you, when you do your research and your thoughts on it, where is the individual responsibility in, in this equation? Well, I think two things on that. I think, first of all, that absolutely every person is free to make whatever choice they want to make. So they, but we got to make sure they have the information. Now, prior to very recently, these players did not have the information about what was really going on. They didn't. They, it, was, it was hidden from them. It was available if you were going to go look through some scientific literature, but... <laughs> The NFL did everything they could. So right there for me, that's that's the that's the first thing. Okay, so now the the information is is more available, more readily available. That you know this is the risk that you're putting yourself to. You could still make the choice. Absolutely. I go back to who is going to be making that choice eventually. It's only going to be people who have no other choices. Yeah, I think that's a great point because I, if people can't tell, hopefully you can't. Well, I don't know how I feel about that one way or the other, but I am African-American. And so my thing, which you're alluding to, which I I figured out when I started researching this, is that the people that are going to end up playing this, the white kids in the suburbs and the soccer moms are going to keep letting their kids play soccer removed, and the people, the kids that are impoverished, mostly minorities, are going to be the ones that end up playing this because the alternative is worth the risk. Yes. And so we then, we have all the rich white people, you know, corporate white America, cheering on these disadvantaged kids and youth and young men as they could, whatever the hell, we don't care. They signed up for it. I mean, that really stinks. And is that the America we want to live in? I mean, I don't. So that's where I feel like we're, where where we as a, a country have a conversation to have and an ethical, you know, a, a discussion because that's what we would be watching. We're barbarians at that point. We, um, in the book, and you mentioned it, and I, I, I sensed a little bit of anger in your voice, and I'm glad you mentioned the word anger. What are some of the stories or some of the things that in your research that just you thought were the most outrageous and made you the angriest about what the NFL did or is doing, I guess? I think, well, apart from the probably the obvious of when you read the stories of what happened to these players like Mike Webster and Terry Long and Andre Waters and the decline with no one there to care for them, and even Junior Seau, I mean, the most right in front of our eyes decline, um, that's really rough, especially when you get at the level of Junior Seau when you have a a celebrated athlete that, you know, uh, so that, that just, that's not so much anger as it just makes me sick. I think the anger part for me comes in when you look at the insidious nature of what the NFL did to manipulate research, to work against, I mean, you had basically two conversations going on among the, in the scientific community. One was the paid scientists, paid by the NFL, and the other was the unpaid scientists who were independent of NFL money. And, and many, times saying, these, uh, many times these scientists for the NFL, they weren't even qualified in any, these areas, right? Right. Uh, the, the lead guy of their study was a rheumatologist. I mean, you know, an arthritis guy, giving, you know, coming out with brain research. So, and they're all paid. Some of them are team doctors. Some of them are, you know. And they're saying something completely different from what the unpaid scientists are saying. And they're putting out paper after paper after paper to refute what the independent scientists are saying. That, to me, I just can't even believe that happened, and I can't even believe it went on as long as it did. I mean, they had like 16 papers or something published that went, you know, basically silenced the 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 other guys. So that stuff made me really angry because that wasn't just willful ignorance. That was like the active... Let's try and come. Let's try and re, redo this narrative. Let's try and not make it be true in the scientific literature. Where was the media in all of this? I think we were talking about culpability. We haven't um, 
we haven't really talked about the media yet, and now they're kind of on to it, but what's their culpability in not signing the Mike Websters and signing what's happening to these people and, and not really aggressively, when these articles come out, like Dr. Amalu, when he posts his findings, what, where's, where's the media been when the NFL is, is doing things like having a rheumatologist be in charge yeah. of the committee or mild head trauma, I think he called it, or mild concussion, whatever mm-hmm. the, the phrase was, which was just absurd to call it that. Yeah, well, I think the media, there are a couple things there. First of all, the New York Times was doing really good reporting, um, even though they were leaving Amalo out of it. That's a whole other backstory. But they were going doing some good, really important reporting back in the 2000s. And it, I, I watch, I read all of that stuff, and I, I would watch the way it would get, like, attention for about a week, and then it would just fall. People got uninterested. And, and so there wasn't a... Um, it wouldn't get picked up by other papers. And it, where is it going to get picked up? In sports pages? Sports writers can't be critical of the sport. <laughs> they can, but it's really... <laughs> yeah, it, it, especially know, a local guy, because that's their bread and butter. They can't. They can't. Yeah, like, you get paid dip- by the NFL, so you're going to go and bash it the whole time? Maybe yeah, a national guy so has that power, but it, a local it guy. Takes, it takes people who are not sports writers, who are not dependent on getting access to the athletes and getting access to Goodell or whatever they need in order to, to st- you know, follow up. And they are not going mean, to – you can see why they're not going to do it. So there were some of – you know, there were a bunch of us who aren't sports writers um, and don't care. Like, I don't care if Roger Goodell doesn't like me. I mean, really, it's nothing to me. <laughs> doesn't affect you. So yeah. you, know, you feel a little bit like the responsibility is on you once you understand this you got to keep writing about it because not enough people are. What was that like for you entering your – you do other writings. I've, I've seen other things that you've written, and you're a professor. What was that like to deeply entrench yourself into the sports world and get reactions from the sports world? It's, it's, a, it's strange. It's because I don't really um, – I don't have a history in the sports world. I don't have – relationships with athletes you know i'm a stranger in a strange land which is actually when you think about it pretty much what bennett omalu was when he entered i mean he was way more a stranger in a strange land than i was he did not understand american football at all he did not understand i mean he's you know from nigeria not that long off the boat you know trying to understand america and trying to pursue the American dream, and he ends up doing this. I I think it took a scientist like that, same way it takes someone who's not a sports writer, to say, hey, wait, something's weird here, you know, something strange. Um, And and he spent his own money to go forward and research it. And then he comes out with his research, and it's just like, who the heck are you, dude? Why Why should we listen to you? You don't, you're not part of our world. So he was very easy to marginalize, and I think that's one of the reasons he was. But that, so in the same way, that, I that's a perfect. Oh yeah, that's that's a perfect segue. The book and the movie focused on Dr. Bennett Amalu. I hope I got the name right. Describe him to the audience because he's quite a character. Oh, he's a really quirky character, delightful, um, brilliant. Came here. He, he he went to medical school in Nigeria when he was. I think he graduated med school when he was 16 or something. Um, he came to the U.S. Um, to get a gazillion more degrees. I think he's got seven advanced degrees or something. Um, and he ended up really finding his calling in pathology and specifically neuropathology, which is the study of brains. Um, and he ended up in a, working in a morgue in Pittsburgh as one of his early jobs. And that's when Mike Webster got wheeled in one day. He had no idea who Mike Webster was. He just had to do his autopsy. Um, and Bennett is this sort of like very religious guy who believed in, you know, that he had a calling and they had to do a, he had a duty to the dead to tell their stories when he did an autopsy. Um, and so he's just a really quirky guy. Um, very I thought one of the interesting things about your book was that how he felt about an autopsy, that he felt that the autopsy was his chance to tell the story of the dead. I thought that was yeah. a really interesting aspect. You could touch on that. Very much so. That was his, like, that's his duty 
to tell the story of the dead. And so you get a guy like this who ends up being dead at 50 of a heart attack, and everyone in the news is talking about, this is Mike Webster, everyone in the news is talking about how he ended up going crazy and living in his truck and using super glue in his teeth. And Bennett's question is, okay, what happened to you, Mike? And he asked him. And he said, you know what, Mike, we're going to figure it out. And ended up spending all this time with his brain, um, including taking it home, right? He took it home to his apartment and worked on his balcony. <laughs> and uh, months and months and months until he figured out he found this irregularity in the cells. And um, it was like, whoa, what is this? And that just sent off the whole chain of events. What was it about his, and we might have touched on it, but what was it about his personality that he had so much determination and he was so dogged about it and he didn't have like he wasn't a Steelers fan, and he didn't grow up watching Mike Webster and wanted to, to help him. What was it about Bennett that made him so determined to prove this? Well, he didn't have any agenda against the NFL. I mean, really, he didn't think, if anything, he thought he was going to be helping them. Like, oh, I found some disease in one of your players. You're, you're going to be very interested to see this. You know, he really, he, he, that's how naive he was. I think for him, it was a scientific, it was a, a mixture of, of this, real sense of calling that he had for the dead, as well as just this really brilliant scientific mind that wouldn't let go of a puzzle until he figured it out. So it was like a, it was a double whammy there, you know, plus the fact that he had all the time in the world. He wasn't married, he was new, he didn't have that many friends, you know, he was just making his mark here, and he had a, you know, he liked, he was a puzzle. So all those comments, all those factors, but it wasn't like I am going to save the NFL or prove and he had no very little awareness of what the NFL even was. Now the first subject that he used and there were later uh, subjects that came along but the first one of course was Mike Webster. Describe for me and the audience what Mike Webster's final years on earth were like. He, <laughs> excuse me. He 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 had a, a really rough 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 beginning. Um, but he ended up, you know, football was his salvation out of a out of a difficult family life, like it is for so many of these kids, these people. Um, but he was obsessed with becoming great physically, um, and and you know, everyone who knew him would talk about this. That and you know, because he was not a big guy, he was a average size, you know, he wasn't real tall, average size, but he excelled at football, and he. I think I can't remember now how many seasons he played for the Steelers, but like 20 maybe, like forever. As center, never missed a play, never missed a game. That is how devoted he was. I mean, loved it. And he had a family, wife and couple kids, and was very devoted to them. And people, he was lo- real lovable. You know, he was just like a, he was like the, the, the backbone of the team. And then shortly after his retirement, it was very shortly after it, may even have been his last years with the NFL, he started to really lose his mind. And he he lived in his truck, and there uh, in the book there are scenes where he uh, had to use a t- super gluing teeth back in his mouth and tasering himself to sleep. It was just, that was the part that struck me the most. It's just really hard to even read. Yeah, he lost. I mean, he lost all his money largely because he forgot where it was. I mean, his family abandoned him because they thought he was just violent. This is a story you hear over and over again. People don't understand. They don't know what's going on, you know. And he's he's just he's forgetful and kind of violent and kind of. And he would get lost, and then he wouldn't show up, and he would disappear, and then no one can keep track of him. And to their credit, the Steelers reached out to him in the beginning. You know, they would, different players would find him, or or I guess the Rooney family would find him and put him up in the Hilton Hotel for a while. But then he would wander off again, and, you know, he, he was just slow over several years decline until he sort of disappeared and showed up at the in a parking lot of a lawyer named Bob Fitzsimmons in Wheeling, West Virginia. And Bob Fitzsimmons 
took just pity on him and like and knew it was Mike Webster. He's like, Mike Webster, what happened to you? And started helping him put his like his paperwork together and his doctor reports and you know uh, that became a really primary relationship and he lived in his parking lot in Bob's parking lot for a while anyway um he ended up he ended up uh, having a heart attack and just dying and that's when he ended up at the morgue and Bennett entered the picture Dr. Omalu post concussion has that doesn't sound right, but post the movie concussion uh-huh. <laughs> made news uh, when he said he, I would call it diagnosed, but he said he would bet his medical license that O.J. Simpson suffers from CTE. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I think that's a I think that's the brain everybody wants. It, it, I, <laughs> I, 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 it's hard to say because you you could certainly see the pattern. I don't know how I don't know if O.J. is like. Demented. I just don't know enough about if we hear from him enough to know if he has that sort of level of dementia or is he just, yeah, what happened to him? I don't know. But I can, you know, that's a pretty intriguing theory when you think it through. Yeah, it really is. It adds so much to the layer, and I don't know if you watched the latest, the miniseries that just came out, but it's kind of come back to public attention. And he's such, he's always been this, this Warshack test for America now he, he oh. could possibly be that for CTE. Yeah, I I mean it is certainly likely. And we and see, given the, that time period and the way they played and and like nothing was given to you when you had a concussion you just they'd shake it off you know smelling salts having your fingers are holding up is what even worse than probably the 80s or the 90s. Yes, I probably was during the worst of it all. Yes. So. It would be, it's pretty, I mean, there's so many guys out there who have this, who are kind of in the shadows, they're not famous, so we don't see them, but, you know, we're just going to keep seeing this and seeing this and seeing this. What was the, or what did you think of the NFL's reaction to the movie as a big sports fan? I heard about this movie coming months before, months in advance, and when it finally came out, and, and basically the thing was this movie potentially was going to bring the NFL to its knees, and there was uh, talk of the NFL trying to make it a little softer and possibly not airing the commercials and pressuring networks. What was your take on everything that happened and the reaction to the movie? I think that, oh, there was so much. There was so much people were. (sighs) There was a lot lot of chatter. But, you know, all that stuff was never true, that the NFL got to the moot got to Sony and got them to soften it. That never, ever, ever was true. So that was all a little bit of um, people, I think, wanting to believe what they wanted to believe. And it was like a almost like a conspiracy theory that was pulled from, if you remember, the um, Sony got hacked. And so there was all mm-hmm. those all those emails. And if you read through it and you wanted to see what you wanted to see, you could see, oh, it looks like they're changing the movie. But none of that was ever true. I always knew that. And then when the movie came out, I think that the NFL basically their strategy was to just ignore it as much as possible. And you know, because the the, the commercials were running during NFL games, during playoff games, the commercials were running. So I, I think that they, um, I mean, I don't think anyone ever thought it was going to bring the NFL to its feet. I think the idea was to get the story out, and I do think the awareness now is just comp- there's no comparison pre-movie and post-movie to to the awareness of what's really going on. Did you ever feel intimidated? And I don't necessarily mean physically, but just of what you were doing and what you were going against in the trailer. I've seen a hundred times probably. Uh, someone says, you're going against a corporation that owns the day of the week. Did you ever felt, feel just intimidated by what the task that you were undertaking and what you were going against? I mean, I always knew it was big. Um but I never felt intimidated because it's kind of like, well, I'm not. I I know I'm not making anything up. <laughs> Everything I'm reporting is is verifiable in the literature already. All I'm doing is string it all together in a narrative so that it makes sense. So I never felt like I was investigating, you know, or pulling out um, beyond just u- using their own words. 
again, you know, to to tell the story. So I never, I thought, well, what are they going to do to me? You know, I, I never felt, I just, I just didn't, it's just, it's just like, I, I think Bennett was the same way. It's like when you know you're telling the truth, you're not as scared, I guess. Yeah. Have you heard from anyone associated with the NFL or even players? I hear from players. I hear from player families quite a bit. You know, we started a foundation. It's called the Bennett Omalo Foundation, which is to sort of promote the science and the and all that stuff. And so we hear we people write all the time with their stories. That 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 that's becoming uh, alarmingly com- common. But I don't know. I don't hear from the NFL. Yeah, I didn't think so. I just wanted to check. Uh, do yeah, you, yeah. How does it make you feel when you hear from players? And I've seen a lot of players have actually said, hey, I'm going to the movies. Hey, I'm taking my teammates. I'm taking a high, a high school team that I know of from, yeah. high, from where I went to high school. What does that make you feel like that you've had that kind of impact on raising awareness? I think that part's great. I, I feel like, you know, I feel like I had a responsibility, you know, as I think anyone who learns this story you, you sort of feel that way, you know. Okay, now I understand this. I gotta talk about it. I gotta tell it. My way is to write a book or write an article. Like that's my way of communicating. And and the movie people, I know they all felt that way. Will Smith felt that way once he understood it. He's like, I gotta play. I gotta do this movie. People have to know. You know. And I think that there's a lot of that feeling for for all the everyone involved in this project, and certainly me. You said that. The NFL's reaction to the movie, the book, the concussions, it, uh, Dr. Omala's research says something larger about greed and, yeah, I guess greed in our culture. Mm-hmm. What were you thinking mm-hmm. when you said that? Well, that's all that it is about. It's a corporation with a product, you know, It's a, and that's, it's like they could be selling soap. And the object of the game is to sell more soap, and so that's what if that's the way they regard it. They're not really trading and dealing with human lives in their in their mind. I, I, that's I, they can't be. There's, there's there's no there's no sense of responsibility. I mean, there's some, but mostly to me, it appears with window dressing, so that we as fans won't hate them. But if they really felt the sense of responsibility towards these players, um, they would be doing something. <laughs> you know, they would at least be actually advancing the science. But it, and they're not. They're just raking in profits and raking in profits. And now they want to have more games. You know, now it's now we got the Thursday night game. Now we're going to try and extend the season. Uh, now we're going to export it to... London or Japan or wherever we're going to start sending the NFL. You know, what do you think of some of the improvements? I mean, they have taken, since being sued, and generally their response to everything, domestic violence, concussions, anything, even the rule changes within the game are reactionary. Uh-huh. But uh, the senior vice president of health, Jeff Miller, basically said, admitted that there was a connection between CTE and football. There have been conflicting messages because other people said no, and Goodell made the couch quote. But they've also yeah. they started tracking concussions. They've changed the rules. They have a spotter now that if they think someone gets a concussion, they're pulled out of the game and they're examined. What do you think of the attempts that they have made, regardless of motive, to try to improve the game? And, of course, with the rule change with the uh, shots to the head in both college and the NFL, what do you think of the changes that they've tried to make? I think you have to applaud that and say good job and encourage it. It's just so tiny. I mean, really against what it is they're facing. And they're, all these things are just tiny. And, and the spotter on the field, and I mean, ugh, the, well, I can't even remember what team it was, where we where we had spotters on the field last season and everybody spotted on TV a player getting a whopping concussion. Yeah, I think, I think it was a Detroit. It was a quarterback, and they let him go back. I think it might have been two years ago, and they changed it again to have, like, an independent person up uh, yeah. higher. So they, they they tried to change it. But the guy was clearly concussed, and he ended up going back in the game. And there have been some hits where I have seen where a star player, even though Ben Roethlisberger pulled himself out, but there have been some hits, particularly uh, Russell Wilson in a playoff game. I think it was two years ago. just took a devastating hit, and they just say, oh, no, he's okay. And it just seems 
sometimes when the star players get hit, everybody's like, oh, he'll, he'll go back, you know. So it does yeah. seem very inconsistent at best. I will give uh, Ben Roethlisberger some credit there because he's, you know, when he took himself out, I thought that was such a when he got something. I guess it was a concussion. I remember he took him it was last season, right? Yeah, I remember. Yeah. He took himself out after after getting a pretty bad hit and saying, "I'm not going to go back in right now." That was really, I thought, a big leadership moment for the other players to see that that's okay to do that. You know, like my my brain comes first here, and uh, look, watch me, teammates. It's okay to do this. I, you don't see that often. That the 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 culture suggests, you know, the opposite. Like you got to prove that you're so so tough that you know your brain can withstand this this car <laughs> crash. Um, and you know, there's like the the ethics of the game are that. And I felt like Roth was that move where he said, okay, you know what? No, that was a big moment. So I think like that when you see leadership moments, that's exciting. But you know, you go, you look at this, and you say, "What are you? Te- what are we teaching our kids by <sighs> cheering this on?" And what, the, the, you know, really, it's I, I, it's not good. We, and I'm trying to think of how to phrase this question. How how conclusive is the science? Because before I read your book and read the article. Uh, most of what I would hear on this subject matter would come five, ten-minute interviews with uh, Christopher Nowitzki of, of WWE, used to be of WWE, now is uh, one of the foremost spokesmen on concussions and CTE. Um, but you would hear these little quotes, and they would have these stats, and sometimes the range, like I would hear that anywhere from 10 to 90% of, of players suffer from CTE. And it's hard to get your mind around it. Even with Junior Seau on my blog, people will say, well, what if you know, what if he was bipolar ahead of time? And But reading the book, you see that Dr. Obama is looking at the brain and seeing these symptoms that are just concrete and, and, and obviously explain these things. What, how, how, um, how conclusive is the science and how hard is it to get the science across to the public? Well, I think the, 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 the real issue, the problem is you can't diagnose it until someone's dead. So yeah, we, which we don't know. We really, truly don't know until autopsy whether or not the person suffered from it, but we certainly know what all the symptoms are. And each time we suspect, or like in 90% of the cases that we suspect, we find we turn out it's true. And but when Because when you do the autopsy and when you look in the brain, it is obvious. The same way when you look in a brain and you see Alzheimer's, like you can give a conclusive diagnosis at that point. It's a very obvious thing you see, these protein buildups. So we do know there's not a lot of speculation. It's just that we can't diagnose it when someone's living. So we have to wait. So What do so, you say to the person? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. Well, well. so, I mean, just to play out that for a second, the, the science then, the direction of the science needs to be, and it is, diagnosing in the living, figuring out a way to diagnose it in the living, because that's going to change everything. So what do, ahead, you say to the per- what, what do you say to the person that, uh, says, you know, we don't know the amount that it affects, and look at all these former players. We mm-hmm. see them on TV, and they're sore, and they have this and this wrong, but they're pretty functional. Like you have Michael Strahan, who's now going to be on Good Morning America, played for a decade, Deion Sanders, Kurt Warner, all these people yep. you see that are on TV, which, you know, is kind of not the best example because they're on TV, so obviously they're going to be the people that join the best. But still, what do you say to, that says, hey, most of these players, it would seem like, aren't suffering from CTE. Right. I say, I say yay, but I also say that's absolutely true, and we don't know why some people get it and why some people don't, why some people have accelerated in it and why it's not. Is, is there a contributing factor with steroid use, for example? Is there a contributing factor with, with genetics? All these questions. So that, again, I scream and yell about let's fund the scientists to figure this out because and, and we can't figure that stuff out until we can diagnose it in someone in the, in the living but in the meantime we know what we're risking here we know what's possible and we at least need to acknowledge that it's true the possibility is actual so 
So uh, that's kind of where we are. I mean, the science is young, absolutely. But when, the movie the book, when, when you look back on the history of, you know, in the in the book, I tease out the whole sort of the history of boxing, what was happening with boxers, and it's really a very almost a similar, almost identical disease, um, and the numbers, the sheer numbers of <laughs> boxers that they found this disease in, and the sheer numbers of of them who were, you know, in the in the forties and fifties, who were living in you know insane asylums routinely. That's what it would happen with boxers until it was like, whoa, it's not good. So, you know, and we forgot about that. Like that whole era, that was what really interested me in the research. It was like, oh my God, I never knew any of this. And you go, you look at the, even at the science and it drops off. And like it's 1970, no more talking about boxers, no more research, no more science. Nothing appears again until like, till this football stuff in 2000. So, like, what were we think? What were we doing? You know, this is I don't know. We just we just dropped it. A light affair. What was the process of making the movie like? Like, how often were you there? I know you were a consultant on it, right? Uh huh. Which could mean you know anything, depending on the the <laughs> director. Yeah, the vagaries and, of Hollywood. Yeah, and in this case, Peter Landisman, the the director and the screenwriter. He was, he's just a really collaborative guy, a former journalist, and um, really valued the facts. And so, um, you know, he, I kind of made myself as available to him as he wanted. Um, and But it turns out, you know, they ended up shooting it in Pittsburgh, so which is where I live. So I was able to be on set all the time, as much as I wanted, which was great. I mean, that was as, as much for my own sort of like just learning process as it was I'm available to, you know, on the fly. If there's, does this look, does this look like the way they did autopsies? You know, that kind of stuff. Did you, did you feel protective of it? Did you feel like, like they were changing your baby, or like a lot of writers feel like, with when they're well, and yours is not a work of fiction? But did you feel that way? No, I, I didn't that much. Although, if they weren't going to be treating Bennett well as a character, I would have. That was kind of like my radar was always up on, like, well, let's make sure we're truthful to Bennett's story and make sure that we're not, you know, in any way, in any way messing up his his true story. So other than that, you know, I was always, a, you know, you have to think this is not a documentary. This is an adaptation of a story. And it's somebody else's vision. It's not my vision once you sort of pass it along to another genre. So I, I was good with that, and I just think also I I just respect Peter so much that I was able to feel, like, good, you know, comfortable. How accurate was the movie? It's really accurate in terms of the beats of the story of what actually happened. What is where where they, and this is true for any movie you're going to see based on a true story, they're going to dramatize... Um, moments in order to tell an emotional truth and that you know because moments don't happen that way in real life like one after another you know right when you need them to so that stuff gets mixed up and and elongated and you know stuff like that to, but it but it's 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 to, in, to the service of telling a true story again not a documentary though but all so what was the exist, just something you noticed that was the the biggest difference and not necessarily an inaccuracy but uh, a focus they put somewhere or a conflation or a storytelling device that they use to amplify something perhaps? Oh, probably uh, I would say, you know, it was difficult to portray how it felt for Bennett to be sort of threatened by the NFL and the fear that he felt once he started being attacked in the media by them. And it's a really hard thing to kind of portray in a movie when it's a feeling. So lots of ways they went to portray that were more sort of like physical-type threats that were mm, not even explicit in the movie. It's not like he had some guy come to him with a, you know, a, a gun or something like that. But it was just more, it was way more, that stuff was amped up, so you felt that more than... Um, in way, but but it was true that he felt that. See what I'm saying? 
Yeah, yeah, I understand that. They had to make it. They had to make the beat. I mean, it's not. He can't be for two hours looking at a brain in his house. That's not going to work as a narrative. Right. So you kind of have to, yeah, dramatize that some of that stuff. So, but in balance, though, honestly, oh, I remember the very first time I saw it for all the way through when it was finished. I was like. I sat back and was like, wow, that all happened. That actually all happened. <laughs> I was like, I can't, I can't deny it. Did you get to meet Will Smith? Oh, yeah, many times, yes. He, he is great. What was he, was he really, like? Yeah. Really, really, pardon? I said, what was he like? I was just encouraging you. Oh, just, uh, I mean, just, I mean, he is a talent, my gosh. Um, and funny, really funny and entertaining on the set. Very devoted to the to the movie and and to the character, um, but just 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 one of those just like what you hope a Hollywood big star is going to be. You know what I mean? He hung out yeah. with everybody all the time. He wasn't one of these guys who'd run in and do his scene and then go hide in his trailer ever. You know, he just made it a nice experience for everyone. And I think he, I don't know, just yeah, I liked him a lot. You have other work that you do. What um, and I've I've looked at it, but can you uh, tell us about some of the other work that you've done in your latest? Oh my. Um, well, I write a lot of stories for for. I've been writing for GQ magazine for a long time, and I have seven books out. I do a lot of work around. I write it for other stories too. I mean, I just had a piece in the New Yorker come out about um, these crazy people who are reinventing the airship. I have a book called Hidden America that's a collection of GQ stories about coal miners and air traffic controllers and people doing this kind of work under the under the you know under the radar that we all depend on those kinds of stories. I love to do those kinds of stories. Gene Marie, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I think the message that you have is very powerful and I wanted to get that to my audience. Well, I'm just I'm so pleased that you took the time, really. Thank you for these really smart questions and a great conversation. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Jean Marie Laskis, author of the book Concussion that was made into a motion picture starring Will Smith. We've all heard about it. If you're a sports fan, that was a great interview. She gave us some insight, and I think if you look at it, you will see that she wasn't coming from a place of malice. She was just coming from a place of information. And what I encourage you guys to always do is to think, watch what you're looking at, and then try to think and not just think that everything you see on the television is what's happening because there are things that are happening under the surface that you should, at the very least, be aware of. Anyway, this is the RC Report. Go to iTunes, search IBN, give us a five-star rating. Also, go to the website. This will be up probably tonight sometime. Uh, go to com for the RC Report. This is RC signing off.